0: He shared last week on Jethro's encouragement to Moses, right? He said, Jethro said, Moses, what in the world are you doing? Why are you doing everything? Right? And uh what was his encouragement? He said, Your job is to train up men and pass responsibility and then and then maybe follow up, but your job is to take responsibility out of your hands and distribute things. So uh, I was thinking about that this week. I spent a lot of time right across the street from the pumpkin house, which like, honestly, like I, d- I didn't know much about it. Really, I've heard it. I actually had never been to it. And so I was there all week and I look over and it, it just blows people's minds to think how much labor it takes. Like I'm looking at some of these pumpkins thinking it would take me an hour to do one of them right? And just people come, uh, come from miles and miles. I was, as we were standing there setting up, there'd be people come through that said one, one family's from New Jersey that happened to be in the neighborhood looking at the pumpkin house. People from uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, of course, Kentucky's right across the river. But I just had the opportunity of meeting Rick Griffith. And he is, I joke around, but he's one of the most interesting men I've ever talked to. They could put a camera on him and do a PBS special and say, Rick, talk. And he'd just have so much history. But listen, I'd never seen a guy like Rick, by the way. You have thousands of people at your house. All this labor has been done. And if you bump into Rick, he's the type of guy that says, hey, come on in. You hungry? You need something to eat? Just come on in. And walk around the house. He explained the things on his wall. I'm like, dude, you've got thousands of people at your house. You need to be with those people. You just feel like you need to be doing something if you have that many people. And it was a perfect example. There are probably hundreds and hundreds of people that work with him to put that together. And it's a great great illustration about uh, what Jethro told Moses to do. So we're going to start off, though, in a new phase uh, today. I'm going to talk about the mountaintop experience of Exodus chapter 19, and uh, we'll look just, just to the first four commandments in a little bit. But there's this mountaintop experience, and uh, they've been led now to a new phase. Um, they've been led to the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And so uh, I just want to share the interaction that they had with God and uh, how God dealt with the people. So uh, just looking forward to this morning, all right? Uh, if you have a Bible or if you want to just look up here, uh, follow along with me. Exodus 19, verse 1, it says there, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land and of, of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now just, that, that's saying three months, exactly three months. And just to give a little bit, of, a million people stepped out trusting God, and they're homeless right now. They're homeless. How many of you enjoy wilderness camping, right? How many of you would enjoy it for three months? None of us. You're talking about anywhere from little children. Have you ever been camping with little kids? Dear heavens. So from that to senior adults, you're talking about camping out in the wilderness for three months. I love one of the comedians says, uh, if, you, uh, if you love camping, like yeah, it's our family tradition. And uh, he said, well, it was everybody's tra- tradition until we came up with a house. But, uh, but these people were homeless, Right? And and they stepped out and trusted God, and God was going to provide them a land, but it hadn't come to pass yet. And they're at this point. You remember we talked two weeks ago about murmuring, and we come to this point. They've been wandering around without a home for three months. And and if you know just kind of the storyline, this is going to start an 11-month period of time in the wilderness of Sinai. And so just put in perspective, and, and every map is different. Like everything is different because it's kind of conjecture, but a lot of people come to the conclusion that Mount Sinai is in the southern point of Saudi Arabia, in uh, present-day Saudi Arabia, but they had traveled from Rephidim and went into this area of Mount Sinai. And so verse 2 says, They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, uh, I've kind of separated things just so we can kind of methodically work our way through and just kind of, I want you to see some points that that were really um, kind of eye-opening to me as we've walked through this myself. Um, But first thing I want to point your attention to is his love described. It's going to make sense in a minute. This is what God said. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Bore you on eagle's wings and he brought you. Do you know how eagles work? Have you ever seen an eaglet fly? An eaglet is a baby eagle, by the way. You ever seen an e- eaglet fly? Like the process that an eagle—there's a reason why this is used. There's a process, like there's a point in time where the eagle, mama eagle, daddy eagle—I don't know—says, "All right, it's time to go. I'm going to kick you out of this comfortable place, and and you got to go." And they go to this period of. I'm not, I'm not a geologist or a biologist or anything, but. They start this period where they jump from branch to branch, building up their strength, so that one day they'll be able to fly. But when they start to fly, that the mama eagle will fly underneath it, that if it gets tired and weary and unable, they can rest on eagle's wings. And the picture here is that God is drawing, He's drawing Israel to himself. And I bore you on eagle's wings. It's this picture of support. This, this, I'm, I'm launching you out from this place that you've been. It's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm, I'm carrying you. I'm bringing you along. Just a side note, what's the desire of every father in this room? I, like, I want my boys to grow up and go. Right? I want them to be a man. I want to go out and be your own man and have your own house. And when you're 30 and you're home, I'm like, you go, buddy. This is too comfortable for you. You're going to have to pay some rent if you're going to stick around. But no, what, what is my role as a father? It's, I'm not going to get to the point that they're 18 and say, all right, out of my house. In my role right now, I have a 9-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 6-year-old boy. Right now, I'm teaching them and training them and helping them along. Like, I, I don't, I'm not just saying figure it out, son. I'm teaching them how to be a man. And then it comes to a certain point where they send them off to college. That's not the end. All right? I'm not, I don't just launch them off and say, hope he figures it out. No, there's still accountability. There's still got to be like encouragement. It's the picture of uh, walking with them. But there comes a day, and I hope it's a day of celebration, where when they launch off on their own, it's a moment of celebration. Uh, this, this whole picture, uh, I, I shared this morning, uh, just from a testimonial standpoint, my dad, when I was in college, I was graduating from high school, and I was a good church kid, but I was born again when I was a junior in high school, recognized I was lost. But uh, when my dad dropped me off at Cedarville University, he drove the whole way back home, uh, crying out to God on my behalf because he didn't think I was capable of making my own decisions. Like I, I just was not mature, even at a Christian school. And I just see this compassion of my father that was there. There was wings that I could fall back on, and that came to the point where I was ready to launch. It was a day of celebration. But this whole picture of our heavenly father... Uh, but, sorry, I was, I've been looking at that picture, and you haven't. So it's just a... Now that you see... We're gonna move on. <laughs> All right. I, I want you to kind of turn your, your attention to his lordship. Uh his lordship. And let me let me say it's an American problem. It's a misrepresentation of the gospel. That we are looking for a savior, but we're really not looking for a Lord. So many people in this country that are they'll say yes to Jesus as Savior and that I'm saved, they'll take care of it. But I don't need a Jesus in my life telling me what to do. I don't need need this dictating my steps. I just want the Jesus that saves me when I die. That's not the the Jesus of the Bible. So he is Lord, and and I just, I want you to see that they were coming on his terms. Verse 5 says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord has commanded him. Uh, this, this, you, you see this picture, Moses going up this mountain, talking to God, and bringing a message back down. You're going to keep seeing this. By the way, he's 80, like 80 plus, and he's going up into a mountain. But all that say, he keeps coming up and then bringing this message to the people, and and they're negotiating something. Verse 8, I want you to see this. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So God said, these are the terms, if you want to think of it as a treaty, these are the terms for me to to be at work in your life and to to have you be my people. These are are my terms, and, and are you in for my terms? And they said, we're in. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. I think that's funny. God probably already knew what the people said, right? Why would why would Moses have to take the words back to God? It seems crazy. I have I have four kids and one of them's a reporter. You know what I mean? Like you hear the conversation in the other room, they're all talking, they're fighting, they're doing whatever, and then I have the one that comes to me just so you know. You you know what I'm saying? It just kind of feels like that. Like God heard the whole thing and then Moses came and told him, "Well, no, what's going on is this treaty." Moses is speaking on behalf of the people, saying, we're in to your terms. You're Lord, and we're coming under your authority, your lordship. Reality is, and just saying it this way, salvation is not coming on our terms to God. There's We're coming under His authority as Lord. That is salvation. The reality is He is Lord. And, and we have to acknowledge that at some point before we die. Really, he's not just Savior, he's Lord. The truth of the Word says, in Philippians says, that every, every being that has a knee will bow. And every, every being that has a tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord. Everything that's living Will acknowledge that he's Lord. And so the, the call today is that you acknowledge it now. Don't just look for a Savior, look for a Lord. It goes on, verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Believe Moses forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. By the way, consecration, is, it's a picture of, of, again, coming under his authority, his lordship. Uh, consecrate uh, them today well, and let them wash their garments, verse 11, and be ready for the third day, for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Uh, no hand, oh, wait, sorry. I, I have this thought, by the way. As I was studying and thinking through this thing, ancient gods, Old Testament, not even, I mean, in the Olympus, Mount Olympus, and all these things, Greek gods, mytholo- uh, mythological gods, different things, they all were in the mountains. Right? We'd go to the mountains to worship our god. We're talking about a living God that came down to show his glory on a mountain. We're not talking about an even playground here. We're talking about God that came down to show himself on a mountain. And so no hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. If you came into his presence, this terrible, awful, powerful presence of his glory it said, if you touched the mountain, you'd be uh, stoned or shot. I put a little note there. It's not guns. There's no such thing as guns back then. It's an arrow. So anyway, it says, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments and he said to the people, "Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman." And that's speaking of ceremonial preparation. That's that's uh, that's not speaking of women are bad. Just so you know. So, uh, but but the reality is, God is saying these are my terms. You you come in this way, and, and you're going to have an encounter with God. You come under my lordship. You will have an encounter with God on this way. Uh, And I I have this. Aren't you thankful that we don't have to clean ourselves up to come to God? That that if your life is a wreck this morning, when we preach Jesus, we're not telling you to clean yourself up so you can get Jesus. Listen, every person in this room, we're talking about garments. Every one of us needs to be clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And, and if you're clothed with anything else, then you're not right with God. So you could be the cleanest looking human being in this room. You're, you might be the nicest, kindest person, but if you're not clothed with Jesus' righteousness because of new birth, then you're not right with God. And so I, I just, I'm thankful that, uh, that I don't have to clean myself up to come to God, that I, I can come because of Jesus. So, I want you to look now. So, it's all leading up to this moment, this encounter with his glory and his likeness was displayed. And I, listen, anything that you and your mind can fathom about what's about to happen, we don't understand it. It's so much more terrible and awful, like just powerful and fearful than we could imagine in his holiness. Verse 16 says, "On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain." Later on mentions that the thick cloud was so thick that, that light could not go through it. Darkness was over everything." Said a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Just just a terrifying. Thing, standing at the base of a mountain and seeing the glory of God come over that mountain. You know, we we talk pretty flippantly about the glory of God, and the reality is we can't handle the glory of the sun without putting sunscreen on. Get what I'm saying? To, to, to stand and to see the glory of God, we would all be shaken. It comes to verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And I I hate to post a picture because a picture makes you think that it makes sense, but... So don't buy into this picture too much. But just to help you <laughs> halfway fathom this, the, the glory covering a mountain. I love driving uh, out, up 77 and just driving through the mountains because I lived in Georgia. And it's just a flat state with a bunch of pine trees, right, for the last 11 years. So when I get to drive through the mountains, it's like, people actually get to see this all the time. Like, it's shocking. It's shocking. Now imagine a mountain being covered with the glory of God so much so that the the actual mountain trembled, quaked, and there's this loud horn and there's lightning and thunder coming down and I, I just want your heart to understand how terrifying this is and these people standing looking and again, sorry about the little depiction there. I don't know. Uh, who that is, if that's you could actually see God, but that's somebody's best uh, attempt at depicting that. But I, I just want you to wrap your mind around how terrifying it is. It said that the trumpet sound, the sound of the trumpet, uh, sorry, sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So, what's your best God voice? You know, we, we hear depictions on TV or whatever, like, is it a deep voice that says you? You know, I don't know what your voice, what your best God voice is, but it's nothing like what this is. God answered with thunder. His response to Moses was with, with thunder. Like, we, we, we can't fathom that, how terrifying hearing a voice from heaven and The Lord came down to Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And by the way, went up again. Eighty years old, by the way, plus eighty years plus. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, "Go down and warn." Moses is like, "I just got up here." No, I was kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, no. Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them will perish. Like he's he's warning them. Don't warn them that if they come in contact with my glory, they're going to perish. You see this thing, this division between his holiness, his glory, that no man can come in contact. You guys stay down there and we're just going to have a representative go into the presence of God. God. It says, and also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits, like hold the people back around the mountain and consecrate it. It's separate. It, his glory is separate from a sinful people. I, I've... I don't know, we have this mentality of his glory as just being tangible, like Jesus is my buddy. We're talking about the terrifying glory of God that, that prophets could not, they could not explain it. They had to say it was like this and it was like this and even how they explain it, like we can't fathom the, the just terrifying glory of God, That's why it was so amazing when later on prophets would say that Emmanuel is coming, God with us. Remember John said this, he said, we looked at Jesus and we beheld the glory of God. That meant something way more than what we kind of empty the meaning to. This kind of glory. We looked at Jesus and saw God. And so it comes to this moment, and by the way, it's this uh, huge shift, this buildup has been happening, and then it says to, to many people, and I, I just say, I've heard it and read it and seen it, that this is one of the pivotal moments in human history. It makes sense to us now, uh, but it's a pivotal point that his law was declared, and, and it, we'll get to it in a minute, but... Before the law, what did we know what sin was? How did we know what sin was except God told us this is sin? So we're left to try to figure out what's right and wrong. We're left to, I mean, what does it look like? And so there's, there's glory in his law. It's good. It's got a purpose for even us. So I want to I just start off by saying The law, first of all, was not Moses' law. So we say the Mosaic law. We say the law of Moses. Let me say this. It's not Moses' law. It's God's law that he sent through Moses, right? Another thing, it's not Israel's law. That law is for all of us. Every human being is held accountable by the law of God. Every single one of us. And, and here's another thing. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's got purpose today. You get what I'm saying? I just, I want to help you understand. And at the very end, I'll tie it up in a neat little bow and present it. But, but I just, I want you to understand that the law that we're talking about, these commandments have a purpose today. And it was from God. I, I wrote a couple things uh, Exodus 31, later on, at the very end, when he shared this whole ceremonial law, everything, he came to the end, it says, and he, God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. It's God's handwriting. In Deuteronomy, when he's retelling what all happened, it's kind of, more like takes a historical look at what was happening presently in in Exodus. He said, verse nine, when I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them, this It's not something that some crazy guy went up a mountain and came up with something and now he just passes it down to generation to generation. Now here we are looking at the tablets. This is God, the author. Right? It says uh, he he wrote it all that was uh, in the midst of the fire of the day of the assembly. Verse 11, and at the end of the 40 days, 40 nights, the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. I just, this is of God and it's for us. And, uh, and so I want to walk through, we're just going to talk about the first four, because the first four deal with a vertical relationship with God. And then next week, I believe Steve's going to be covering the, the next six, which deal with, I mean, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not covet. You know, it, It's dealing with this kind of uh, horizontal relationship. So starting off, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, Um, And it's going to be a little bit more practical. We're going to center in on on each of the four commandments quickly. Um, I want you to see verse 1. Lord God spake all these these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you're my people. I'm bringing you to this moment, and now I'm going to deliver to you something that's going to change your world. All right? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Let, me. let me share with you how my mind, knowing the English language, how I see this. I think about it this way. You shall not have any gods before me, like in priority. Like right here is the number one God, and then here's the other gods, That's not what this verse is saying. It's saying, you shall have no other gods in his presence before me. It's saying there there are no other gods but him. So whatever we make as a a point, this is is a God of mine, but not as big as my real God. I'm saying get rid of all the other gods because there's only one God. MacArthur said it this way, he said, All false gods stand in opposition to the true God, and the worship of them is incompatible with the worship of Yahweh. You can't have it both ways. You either worship gods or you worship God. Okay? Uh, and I'm gonna step on a little bit of toes, but understand I'm stepping on my own toes just for a minute. You can't worship God and worship your family. Now, let me just say it this way. There's a difference between caring, loving, nurturing your family and worshiping your family. All, like all your affection, you have a little bit left for God. I'm saying God has placed that responsibility in your life and you're to do it diligently with all your love. But I think we sometimes worship our own kids. Or we worship uh, our history. I, I see too, like you've heard the term God and, God and nation. Like, we, I'm a patriot. I love America. I had a family that fought in wars, God and country. Man, that's, that's the heartbeat of, I just love my country. But listen, they're not in the same, I'm a patriot, but I don't worship my country. I don't worship our history. I worship God, right? Uh, and just, I put here on here, God and football, <laughs> When I was studying to share, it happened to be too uh, meditating on what we're sharing today, and uh, there's a football game in the background. You know how hard it is to study when there's a football game in the background. Let me just say, it's impossible. So this Bible's open, and you hear touchdown or whatever. Your brain is somewhere else. So just, I'm just saying this. Anything that we place in the room with the Lord, it's not comparable. If you struggle to know what you worship, it's whatever, your time, your effort, your heart, your money, what is it that you throw everything at? Just be careful that there's no other God before in his presence. Uh, Number two, I'm going to keep moving. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above like sun, moon, stars, birds, things that are above, uh, or things that are in the earth beneath, like animals, like things that walk around, and people, okay? Or that in the water of the earth, fish, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who, who love me and keep my commandments. Listen, uh, I don't know if you've heard of pluralism. We live in a pluralistic society that your God can be your God and my God can be my God. You just, We'll just keep it that way. But don't you come in here and tell me to worship your God. Who do you think you are? Right? Is this pretty common today? Like it's pretty, when somebody stands up and says it like that, kind of you feel, is there somebody in the room that, might be offended by that. I'm just saying this way, there is one God. There is one God. And the the problem is we're afraid to share our faith with people. I'm not cramming it down people's throat. I'm not trying to get you to sign up for Jesus. I want you to hear the gospel and let the Lord draw you. And listen, The, the, the problem is we're afraid to tell other people that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only light. Because it might step on somebody's toe. I've been to Ireland and walked through cathedrals where the Catholic Church presents relics that you can pray to and, and have, have those saints work on your behalf. This graven image of something or some replication of something. Is there any power in that graven image? No. I've gone to India. And India is probably the craziest thing, but you walk in a home in India, and you can see shelf after shelf, I, I just to write down, 33 million gods. And so when you go to India and you see shelf after shelf of all their gods, and you come in and say, listen, I, I want to share with you the one true God, the only God. They're like, and he's the way, he, listen, through Jesus, you can be reconciled back to the one living God. They're like, okay, yeah, let me. And you know what they do? They take that Jesus and add it to the shelf of all the other 33 million graven images. I just say that everywhere I've ever been, mankind needs to make something so that they have the security of being able to believe in something. And I'm just saying this, we're, we're talking about a God that can't be made with hands, we're talking about a God that cannot live inside of a building made with hands. He's the living God, and so when you stand and, and you share Jesus, understand it's not like a competition between gods. There's not another competi- competitor. But there's not another competitor, and uh, and so just just uh, it just seems like a, a, mankind needs some replica. To, to begin to worship into. And so, commandment number three, or commandment number two, uh, no, commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It says, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is so much more, just so you know, so much more than cussing. So, it's this is way uh, deeper than just, well, you took the Lord's name in vain. And ironically, that was the thing that God used in my heart to to help me see that that I was not born again, that my heart was unregenerate, that I had a I cussed like a sailor when I was in in uh, early in high school, and the Lord helped me see like blessings and cursings don't come out of the same mouth. And I acknowledge that I I need a Savior, and I was born again my junior year of high school. But I I say this is more than that. That's one aspect. But listen, this has more to do with um, saying you'll do something and then stamping God's name on it as a guarantee. Know what I mean? so when you say, listen, I swear on the name of God that I'll do this. Well, Jesus said, I I mentioned this morning, Jesus said, Matthew 5 says this, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need to stamp Jesus' name on it. So, but, but there's one more thing that, it's going to be funny to some of you guys, but there's one more thing. When we take the will of God and use it as a spiritual trump card on any conversation. So I'm, I'm going to do something that's, that's opposite to what the Scripture teaches me to do, but it, it, bless God, it was the will of God for me to do it. What can somebody say if you say it's the will of God? So, a personal story here. Uh, I was dating a girl, and we'll call her Buffalo Girl. Uh, when I was a, a high school student, she was from Buffalo, and uh, I grew up south of Buffalo, away south of Buffalo. And uh, it got to the point, like, summer camp came around, and you go to summer camp, like, there's a lot of fish in the sea when you go to summer camp. They're pretty girls, and... And I'm like, man, she's a great girl, loves the Lord, and she really does. She's a genuine girl, but I just feel like I'm not going to my potential. There's got to be something better out there. Could be something better. So I I went to her at summer camp, and I said, listen, uh, Buffalo girl, uh, uh, I just think it's it's the Lord's will right now. It would be a good idea for us to break up. You know, it's not you, it's me. You know, whatever we make it. And I was rebuked by my father. I'm thankful for it. He could see right through my intentions. And it's crazy how we say, how we say, it's the God's will. Well, what can Buffalo Girl say to me if I say it's God's will? she's she going to say, no, it's not God's will? She doesn't doesn't know because God's will is for my life. But it's when we empty the name of Jesus and we blame things on him that he never did, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. Right? And so it just it hits home to all of us, I hope. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. You don't need to use his name and empty it of power. You don't need to use it as a trump card. If God is directing you is not violating scripture, you, you can have confidence. At the same time, just don't take his name out of context and empty its power. Now, number four. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy or separate. and made it holy. Of all the Ten Commandments, there's only one that we say does not apply to us. It's this one. And there's reason, by the way, but this is the one we say, everything else applies to us, like you can't kill your neighbor. That's against the law of God. But you can forget to rest on the Sabbath. Sabbath. When's the Sabbath day? Is Saturday, right? So we, didn't, I mean, it's not a law for us to do it. You know why? It's because New Testament. It's the one commandment that's not directly reiterated in the New Testament. So then, because of that, we say, "I'm out. I don't have to do this. Like, I don't have to plug in. I don't have to go to church and whatnot." Um, but listen, uh, I remember when I was a kid. Just a side note, and I. I feel like I'm old when I say it because it's not normal now, but uh, growing up, we never went out to eat on Sunday afternoons, right? You know why not? Because the people that serve you had to work to serve you, right? So instead, you know what we did? We made mom work and feed all of us. (laughs) So the way we justify around, like, no, I mean, I'm not bound by the law anymore, right? Right? I'm not bound by the law, and so the way we do it, uh, mom, you take, a, you take a break. We'll go out to eat today. And uh, I'm just saying it, it feels like, was he, is he going to touch on legalism? No, I'm not saying that because I'm not bound by the law. But I'll just say this. Why in the world did Jesus rest? Why did God rest after he created for six days? You ever think about that? Was it because he got a little tired and he'd take a nap? No, he never sleeps nor slumbers. The reality is God does not need rest. But he presented to us a pattern that we need. You need rest. And it's, it's not just like it's set apart. is holy, like the Sabbath is the sixth day or the seventh day of the week. We now worship on the first day of the week. And listen, when you get so busy, I love Steve mentioned this last week, you get so busy and something needs to give, What's the first thing that gives? It's the thing that you need the most. I don't go to church because I have to go to church. I go to church because I get to. And when I come here, I'm ministered to, and it, it allows my, my soul to be sanctified. Like, you got know what I'm saying? It's a, a period of rest, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna hurt you guys just a little bit. I, I, let me mention this before I hurt. Now I'll put it up there. Uh, what day is Chick-fil-A closed. All of you guys are hungry for Chick-fil-A on Sundays, right? And now you're like triply hungry because you're looking at, I think I just made up a word, triply. But uh, reality is your family needs rest. Your business needs rest. Everybody needs rest. There's something about the Chick-fil-A effect. You notice... Like the nicest place in the world, probably nicer than most churches in this (laughs) tri-state, is Chick-fil-A. You walk in, you feel like you're welcome there. I belong here. You know what's crazy about Chick-fil-A? Why do they always get the best employees? It's just because they get a day of rest. So you're going to get the people that want a day of rest. And, And the crazy thing is, everybody told Truett Cathy... That's a big mistake, man. You're going to lose business. Could you imagine how many of us, right after the service is out, will go straight to Chick-fil-A, one of the two, because we saw this picture. Like, they get a lot of business today. And he said, we need rest. And there's something, there's an effect. I'm just saying, if God set it in motion, I know we're not bound by the law. If God set it in motion and said as a pattern that I need to rest, I'm telling you, you need rest. Rest. From school, from work, from sports, we need to rest. Uh, and so I, I just want to—I want to encourage you. And I'm, like I said, I'm going to wrap it up, put in a cute little bow, and in, in one minute I'm finishing out. the The consequence of not fulfilling any one of these commandments—do you know what it was? The death penalty. People come to church. <laughs> If that happened, people would be uh, uh wouldn't have graven images. listen, death penalty yeah the irony is we failed that the commandment was not given to us so that we could be righteous. it was given to us to show us that we're sinners we're dead in our sins and and the crazy thing if we fail the law in one point, we're guilty of the entire law, the word of God is very clear that We're eternally damned because of that guilty, because of that guilt. The reality is, this is not for spiritual reasons, but it says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I didn't even know what sin was because it was dead. But when I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You see, we need the law. Every one of us needs the law to acknowledge that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, and we need a solution, and the solution is Jesus. He's the one person that fulfilled the law. He didn't just, in all points... Uh, was tempted like we are, yet without sin. By his life, he fulfilled it at every point. And, and that is our only hope of righteousness isn't how good we are at keeping the law, but it's because of Jesus. And so that's the cute little bow I wanted to end with this morning. If you don't know Jesus, um, you're standing before God in, in your righteousness. The word of God is clear that it says filthy rags. Our, our best that we can bring to God is nothing but filthy rags. You must be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus.